All right, we've officially entered the back half of season four. This thing is just loaded from top to bottom, and we're getting started with the laws of gods and men, or as it's better known as Tyrion's trial episode. This is another one of those episodes that I think in the long run, people kind of forget that like, oh yeah, there's other stuff that happens in this episode other than just the main event that people watch it for. I feel like that could also be applied to Hard Home as well, where everyone watches Hard Home. They're like, okay, we're just ready. When's the White Walker attack him? When's the White Walker attack him? And they forget that like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of other storylines we have to sit through. And I kind of had the same feeling going into this episode. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Pat? Hey, listen, you know, I totally agree with you, but uh, you know, I think the Talking TV family, is going to agree with me that this is what is it the the laws of gods and kangaroos because this court is definitely going bananas this, this court is all out of order to to, to to quote a very famous al pacino movie all of that and more on today's episode of talking thrones So, Pat, I was actually doing the math here, and obviously, you know, there's 73 episodes of this show's entire run, so obviously the math is never going to line up as there being like a perfect halfway episode, but somewhere between this episode and the next episode, we're roughly at the halfway point of the entire show's run. Oh, <laughs> that would amaze me if I wasn't looking uh, during the intro uh, what, <laughs> what kangaroos actually eat, and it's not bananas. I was about to say, uh... like, I don't think I've ever heard that kangaroos <laughs> eat bananas, ever. Yeah, yeah, so it's apparently uh, leaves and grass, <laughs> uh, like koala. So uh, I mean, there's not yeah, a whole I got that one wrong. Of, there's not a whole variety of flora available in Australia to eat, so they kind of got to go with what they have available. Just like what Tyrion kind of has to go with what's available to him here, because as he sees, I mean, I just I, if I could just do a quick point about the trial before we actually get to it, I just love that. Like, I I think probably the highlight for it for me is seeing just Tyrion's face. But the entire thing is he's just sitting there in this kangaroo court. And he's like, okay, this is a farce. Can we just get this over with? And it's even, what's even funnier is seeing Jamie, the slow realization of him realizing throughout the course of this thing, being like, oh my God, maybe Tyrion was right. Maybe this thing has been a complete joke engineered against him. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, bless you, Jamie, for being naive enough to still believe that your dad would actually engineer this as a fair trial. I mean, the fact that their own dad is a judge on this trial that should have been indication enough like oh what is it tommen like i am a robot i, I could not myself. clearly sit on this i will recuse <laughs> you know it's like come on man like you, you do nothing in this series but laugh at a a bad wedding show and you know basically do what you're told exactly uh, and then, and then, and then you throw know. yourself out a window <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess uh, you know. I guess he falls in love. I guess that's the biggest storyline that he's uh, a Probably. part of. Uh, the biggest action that he takes. Yeah, just about. Yeah, but uh, like, like I said, it, it's really strange because this episode is structured very similarly to, to the Lion and the Rose in the sense that there's this gigantic, like, kind of set piece uh, event that we kind of follow for the entire second half hour of this show. So much so to the fact that you almost forget like the minimalistic storylines that do happen in the first half. I'm not gonna say they're all bad. There are a few good moments here, but like, there's one storyline that happens in the first half of this episode that I'm like, yeesh. 
did not age well in hindsight. And I, I, I think it's also a little bit of a precursor to, unfortunately, and I love Brian Cogman. As I've said, he's written some of my absolute favorite episodes of this entire show. He wrote the Oath Keeper episode two, ep- two episodes ago, which we both collectively loved. But this might have been a precursor to him writing easily one of the worst episodes of the entire well, show with the unbroken un- un- broken listen, next season. I- I think we should just start right there. You know, it's, hey, listen, this is the infamous Theon gets a baths yes. uh, episode. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. So basically, so basically, bad. oh my God. There's like this old boy fight sequence in the dog kennel where like that was pretty uh, cool. Yara comes and tries to save him, but he believes it's a trick, which doesn't make any sense because he, he could he could still he see like see he, he has it's eyes like, there's clearly a difference between <laughs> the women who we didn't recognize who we didn't know last season who were clearly said by Ramsey as, as part of a ploy by him and his own sister who he does recognize but he does I don't it's it's just a giant flaw but I wanted to go back even further before that which is the scene <laughs> okay go ahead go ahead you you lead on this one where they're sailing to the Dreadfort, and first off, like, just the logistics of how they get to the Dreadfort, like, because I, I, geographically, it makes no sense, because the Dreadfort is one of the castles that's on the other side of the continent, so it's not like they can just, like, sail right to, like, right into Moat Kylan, or right to, you know, Deepwood Mott, or any of the other castles, or, like, Lannisport, for example, in the south, or any of the other castles that are on the west side of Westeros, you know, by where, close to where the Iron Islands are, they gotta sail down around, like, Old Town, and then all the way back up to get to the Dreadfort, so that sort of kind of explains why. It took them so long to get there, but then you have this bizarre editing structure where you have Yara making this grandiose speech, reading the letter that Ramsey sent to us last season, recapping us that we could have possibly forgotten. Intercut with Ramsey having sex with Miranda. I don't, like, what does this serve? Like, what, what are we doing here? Like, what is the point? Of- well, hey, hey, listen, you know, it's it's he's busy, and they're gonna sneak in and they're gonna get Theon, they're gonna take him out. So, like, you know, obviously they need to give him something to do. He likes two things: one you know, making love and the other torturing people. So we've had enough torture. They basically put him in relaxation mode or well, probably both are relaxation yeah. modes, but he, you he know, that's another, <laughs> yeah. So I, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it is a weird, um, you know, setup for them it, it going back and forth between this, but it's like, Hey, we got to occupy him. He also, it's like, you know, Hey, if he's going to do an old boy fight scene in the dog kennel, let's make him, you know, not sure. have his shirt. And I, know, I, like... I have that written down as a point there as well. <laughs> so, like, you have Yara and them climbing over the walls. You have them, like, holding the one guy captive. And I love how the one guy just, like, is, like, tries to lie at first. And then he, like, does it. And then they get to the kennel and, like, she kills him. And I'm like, I don't know. That, that scene always just kind of threw me off. But, like, it just, that, that's probably the most logical thing about that. This entire sequence is her cutting the guy's throat. <laughs> Yeah, so so Ramsey comes in and he's just like, he he sees all this chaos going on and he's just like, hey, tonight's gonna be a good night. And it's like, you weren't having fun before? Yeah, right? It's uh, like, not. I was already covered in like all these fresh cuts and bruises. And I'm like, Jesus, I don't even want to know what you were up to before. But hold on. I, I had a great note written down here that I thought was just freaking hilarious where in the previous episode, right? You know how you had that great exchange between Arya and the Hound and the whole bit that was like, a you know, a point of reference between the two of them was the fact that Sirio died because he didn't have armor or a sword. And Ramsey here just proves, nope, I've got the best kind of armor there is plot armor because they don't <laughs> land a single blow on him completely shirtless covered in god only knows what kind of scratches and he takes out like what three four iron board just on his own i'm like god damn dude remind me to never bet against that guy 
Well, listen, they pay the iron price. Uh, they decided to go up against a shirtless Ramsey. And, you know, you never go up against a shirtless Bolton uh, in this series, apparently. Yeah, we're having fun. But, yeah, this this entire sequence is a mess. Like, besides the fact that it was never in the books, like, we've talked a lot about how this season, Betty Off and Weiss really added a lot of seeds that helped to flesh out, like I said, what was already a very minuscule section of the third book. But th for them to just add this scene, it really has, like, I, the only thing that it kind of sort of adds later on is, like, to sort of justify, like, why Yara's pissed at Theon when he comes back to the Iron Islands later on. But I'm like, sure, I guess, but, like, okay? Like, I don't know. Like, just, and then, then for them well, to... I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna cut you off, because I, I just feel... Like every time we talk about the Greyjoys, it comes down to the idea that pretty much this starts off hot. Like Theon's a great character, you know, he gets kidnapped by Ramsay and all this stuff start happening. And we really want to believe that he's a character, he's gonna, you know, uh, fight adversity, he's gonna become, you know, we're playing the long game. Sometime at the end of the series, Theon Greyjoy is going to be important and do something cool and we're going to, as fans, appreciate that. Unfortunately, the Greyjoys, I f feel like they didn't know what to do with them throughout the series. Like, uh, they have some great moments. You know, we, we kind of are all on board the Greyjoy train. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, they're just characters well, in this they're universe. Not important. They're not important. So, you know, I feel like it goes back and forth. It's sometimes I'm, I'm willing to, you know, believe that in some way that the story is going to progress with them. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, you know, we just throw a scene in there. Not, you know, it's not too bad of an action scene in yeah. this episode. Uh, it kind of makes sense that she would go and try to rescue him. Um, you know, I guess showing the trauma, like how traumatized he is, um, you know, is, is fine. But the fact is, at this point, hit him with the hilt of your sword, drag him out of there. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, fireman carry not, or something like, like that. It's not that difficult, really. It's like, it's, again, just yeah, the logistics of it are just so bad. There, there's so many ways that they could have just, like, knocked him out and, and you know, just sort of dragged him out of there before Ramsey shows up without his shirt. Uh, you know, it, it's, I don't know, it, it's, like, rethink the scene, you know. Yeah, it's um, not good. And, and then it, for it to end, it's just like, oh, where is he? Oh, he's dead. Okay, like it's just like as, as if you like needed a justification. Just been like, well, okay, that that didn't happen. Let's go. And I'm like, okay, see you in two seasons. Bye. Yeah, and, and I think you're you're right about the fact that later on in the series, you know, it, it kind of adds to the relationship, like Theon being forgive uh, forgiven and all that type of stuff, and like the whole idea that uh, he cedes his right to the throne, and and Yara is really the rightful person to take on the the Ironborn. Um, you know, I think that all kind of makes sense. And, you know, this could be like that little seed that's went somewhere that's, though. Yeah. Planted for that. But, uh, ultimately, you know, this is just like, you know, take it or leave it sequence yeah. in this season. It's just to have the gray joys in there. It, it really doesn't amount to anything. Um, you know, give it as much weight as you want, but you know, ultimately it seems like the two of us are just like, it was what it was, and, and we're moving on from it. Right. Well, so I've talked about this before, um, is that the the two, I think, families, sets of characters that the show does the biggest disservice to. You know, obviously the Martells are the most widely known one because of how season five really deviates from their rich and interesting storyline that they had in book five and book books four and five, where that goes. But the Greyjoys are the other half of that coin because I definitely think that if you just look at the direction that Martin takes the Greyjoys in, um, you know, post 
book three really it's almost really like Theon almost is like not really like a character Theon really was just the introduction to that world because the direction that they take Yara or Asha as she's known in the books as her character's name in the books and then Balon's other two brothers you know Euron the drastically different direction they take with him they also have you know the other Greyjoy uncle that is never not even a character in the show Victorian and the direction that they take him in you know like they they have them set up to where the Greyjoys are going to have a really interesting part to play in the wars to come, as is mentioned. It's just unfortunately at the point where we were left at the books, they were all kind of on cliffhangers. You know, Asha kind of had to flee after she lost the King's Moot and then settled back in the north. And then she kind of got caught by Stannis, which is where she was reunited by Theon after he escaped from Winterfell. Victarion is the one that's carrying the envoy over to the east to Daenerys on behalf of Euron, although he really plans to marry Daenerys on his own and then wage war with Euron. And Euron, the only thing that we know of is that Euron is going to raid um, Old Town. In order for it's in order to potentially find documents that could relay in a potential theory that a couple of people online have had that Euron is going to find this horn that will allow him to potentially control or form some sort of alliance with the Night King. Because the whole thing is that Euron, as a character in the books, besides being tremendously different from his portrayal in the show, is again, he's a world traveler, he's been around the other side of the world. Some say that he's been to like the far corners of, of Essos in a shy and all those. He studied like the deepest, craziest forms of magic, and it's being shaped up to be like a pretty big force to be reckoned with in the last two books if and when they ever get released but again it's it's kind of a martel situation where the seeds were still only there for like that act of the story you know these were characters that we were still being introduced to at this point within the books we really weren't benioff and weiss probably only had like the inklings and the outlines of what to do and it was just became very clear that these were the two sets of characters they had the least interest in which is a shame because again as i constantly bring back and forth and we'll cover this more next season when we get into the martels and how they deviated from them it's just kind of sad because again martin clearly shows that every character that he brings in he has like something that he can give to them you know something that he can give as far as like pushing them in an interesting direction Another instance of where Benioff and Weiss kind of screwed up with the character from the books, but we're not quite to that point yet, is Stannis. Because while this because this scene, while it only opens the episode, I do still say that this scene and the Daenerys sequence in Essos, contrary to the to, to the attack on the Dreadfort from the Ironborn, those are two actually pretty well-written scenes. And two, I think, really, really like well-intended scenes that get their point across as far as what we're trying to go for. Where Stannis and Davos, you have them sailing into Bravos. You have this really cool shot. It's the first time we actually see Bravos on the show before Arya spends the next two seasons just wasting time there, training with the Faceless Men. <laughs> wasting time. <laughs> well, that's a way to put it, uh, Dom. I mean, but... <laughs> I feel like that's putting it as lightly as I possibly can. But, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, what is this... it? Oysters and cockles and, and all that stuff? And you know? cockles. Oh, God. Oh, yeah, no, I, no, I can't. I, I don't want to listen to that oh, ever again, but like, I'm not looking forward um, to that at all. <laughs> but uh, anyway, you know, listen, this is Davos's uh, scene to shine. Like, you know, Stannis is is sitting there and he, he's just like, hey, this is uh, I'm the true king, blah, 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 blah. And everyone's like, well, we don't like your numbers, 32 right. ships and. You know, right. you don't Matter have any uh, like, oh, yeah, yeah. You're, it's like, okay, you're a king. Cool. You know, we, 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 we've, we've dealt with so many kings in Westeros who kind of lost track. You know, we, you yeah. Know, we, so, so Davos is the one that basically steps up and, and, uh, counters their arguments as Tywin is the true person on the throne. He's 67. You know, he's not going to last forever. And the fact is, you know, once he's gone, who's going to be there? You know, Cersei, she's pretty mad. Tommen, he's pretty incapable and who's left and Stannis is the true leader like he has a, a blood right he also is a, a battle commander these are exactly uh, the words he uses in his argument and he basically takes off his glove and shows uh, that you know he has uh, the four main fingers missing or at least half of them gone 
because Stannis is someone that pays back, you know, what is owed or takes what's owed or whatever the, the, the phrase was. Um, but he basically, Stannis is honorable and, you know, will pay back this money if you lend it to him. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the day, Davos uh, does what he came there to do, which is to get funds for their next exploits. Yes. And if any, well, so this is our introduction to the Iron Bank, which are characters that we are only briefly, I think, mentioned in the books. So, you know, the Iron Bank, they have a little bit more of a, of a presence in the show is, again, kind of this overall looming, like, kind of source of capital for Westeros. You know, they've been hinting at them for a little bit. We know that Robert's been tremendously, you know, that the crown has been tremendously in debt to them going all the way back to season one with Robert. And obviously we have the infamous drop from last from last episode where Tywin just casually mentions to Cersei, oh, yeah, by the way, we're tremendously in debt to the crown because uh, to the Iron Iron Bank because all of our all of our gold mines have dried up. Still a really weird drop by Tywin. If anything, if anything, it sucks because I hate to bring that up, but I feel like if anything, the the the, the Iron Bank would have looked even more favorably on Stannis and on Stannis and Davos because of how in depth the Lannisters were. You know, because even though because at the end of the day, Stannis only has the one loss at Blackwater. You know, he's still relatively inexperienced as far as that goes. You know, so even though the Lannisters have won over the Starks. Uh, and, and technically achieve this battle superiority. At the end of the day, they're still in a very volatile state. They just lost Joffrey. Tommen has been crowned king, you know, and, and it proves to be pretty incapable. Tywin is pretty old, even though he's still really the only thing holding the family together. And as we come to see, Cersei is going to do the family no favors in the next two seasons, you know, once Tywin dies. So, if anything, I do find it a little bit odd that the Iron Bank doesn't immediately kind of jump at Stannis's opportunity. Uh, obviously, I can't, I can't blame Davos because Davos doesn't really know just how volatile the Lannisters really are. But he does a good job. He makes a good case. Also, shout out to we also get uh, you know Mark Gaddis as uh, Tycho Nestoris, the leader of um, the leader of those three you know bankers. You know, infamously, he's one of the co-creators of Sherlock and also portrays Sherlock's brother Mycroft on the BBC uh, Sherlock show, as well as a variety of other performances. Really, really good actor. It's always good in hindsight to see him and stuff because I really, really enjoy him. Um, yeah, and well, so I, I, I think with the Iron Bank, one of the things to to think about really here is the Lannisters are kind of tapped out. Like their credit line is is pretty much uh, booked They've up. They've extended as much as they're willing to. And, and Stannis doesn't really have a line of credit. So, you know, the Iron Bank is sort of a, a little bit, um, you know, it makes sense for them to say, hey, take this money and you owe us. And it doesn't really matter. Like Lannisters win or Stannis wins. Uh, basically, both sides owe his, uh, the Iron Bank money. Um, you know, and so the more families in Westeros that owe the Iron Bank, the better because basically they'll all be under the the thumb of the bankers and you know it's not necessarily like the debts will be paid back immediately but over time you know that's going to really add up and you know they keep mentioning the armies of the iron bank you know the iron bank might actually have some sort of claim and be able to come into westeros and ally with pretty much right. any family that they want and you know decide what they're their taxes are and, and what sort of, uh, you know, revenue stream they get uh, for wh whoever ends up winning and controlling 
uh, Westeros and the, the Seven Kingdoms. Right. As has been previously said on the show, the Iron Bank does not have any stake in who sits on the throne. The only thing they care about is getting their money's worth. That's a whole thing. If they invest in one side and that one side doesn't honor their debts, then they will yeah. just go and invest in the other side. You know? scared, like, scared money doesn't make money. As, as they, the Iron as, Bank yeah, uh, as, as they said, uh, lives you know, by the, that creed. Westeros tells the story of kings and bloodlines. They are tell the story of numbers. You know, much le- mu- you know, much more succinct, much more straight to the point, much less open to interpretation. Interpretation, as 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 Tycho Nestoris says to them. So we have another really really good sequence. Like it, it's interesting because this sequence is one of those ones where it sucks us to where it goes within Daenerys's arc throughout Marine because the every time I watch this one particular sequence, it just gets better and better with this particular scene. I love how we talked about the last episode and how Marine was kind of only exposition as far as catching Daenerys up on everything that was happening in Westeros. And this episode is kind of like the, you know we've kind of ended her conquest phase. Now she's made her decision to go into her ruling phase, and now she's actually like learning what it's like to be a ruler. And this episode, well, this sequence uh, Dom, is do you think do you think, sucks? Do you think in the uh, the script? It basically said like exterior marine field day, you know, the sound of music, goats run, you know, happily <laughs> in the field, like the herders the hills are, are alive. Yeah, the hill the hills are alive, the herders are just kinda like singing and having you know, a, a great time, and then I don't know. Could you, could you all of a sudden, like, dragon kills everything. Could you, could you have thought of like a more like happy, like you know, peaceful setup to before just dragon fire, right? And the crazy part is that Drogon's not even as big as he gets in later season when he starts to like really lay down some damage. But still, like, I definitely think it's a good foreshadowing as to like the you know, kind of like the, the damage and the destruction that these things are going to bring once they reach full size. I think it's very, very effective as, you know, like you have the looming shadow up, you know, the effects are a little bit better on him. He gets closer to the kid as he looms over and then he just goes in, roasts the one go, carries it up. Like you see it like roasting while he's carrying it off. And like, it's, it's really, really well done sequence, I think. And then we cut to Daenerys in the throne room. You know, the farmer is going to, um, you know, the farmer presents the goat bones and Daenerys kind of just writes it off. <laughs> yeah, she, she's like, I'll, I'll give you uh, the goat's weight in beans. Something like that. <laughs> you know, something, something like, like that. that. I don't know like, what it was. But it's like, I feel like it is a good precursor, though, is to her conversation with his Darzo Lorak that follows because, it's, again, it's like she's still, even though she's like assumed this position of leadership, she's not really that aware of just what it is that her position and her influence the effect that it's having on the people because again she really hasn't had any experience with ruling people yet you know she was Cal Drogo she was pretty much Cal Drogo's Khaleesi and like she called some shots there but that was really it that she was stuck at Karth for a season just kind of doing whatever and then just spent the last season and a half just you know moving conquest after conquest freeing people and she hasn't had the chance to really take a step back take a breath, actually learn like what it's like ruling a people. And she started to understand it. She started to realize it's like, oh, wow, you know, I, I, I might be wanting to do good, but that doesn't mean that my dragons are going to be the best for all the farmers going on, you know? And as she comes to find out afterwards, when she, you know, when he starts Olorak um, comes in, you know, she's making all these claims like, you know, he's, our, he's in one of the most uh, oldest and most rich families in all of Murine. And he's and she's and he talks about his dad. She's like, "Oh, I'd love to meet your dad." And he's like, "Well, you you did you, you crucified him." And like just the, the look the the look on her face just <laughs> well, it's always like, "Oh, it, it's also awkward. like it's it's also she's like, "Well, they all deserved it." And he's like, "Well, he spoke out against it and was overruled." And it's yeah. like, "Well, tough." Yeah, you know, basically, it's if you were part of that, yeah, exactly. If you were part of that ruling class, you were part of the sort of old way of thinking about things. And, you know, you were complicit. And so, you know, to a certain degree, 
it's it's kind of a back and forth. Like obviously right. he did it's not a good want back and his forth. father like, it killed. It is a well written dialogue sequence as far as like you know yeah. presenting the different sides of the coin. You know. Yeah, but there, there's sort of a sense that both sides are right here. Yeah. You know, it's like one hundred percent. Daenerys didn't really look too far into it and didn't really, you know, seek a proper, uh, you know, punishment for each individual. She just kind of did this blanket punishment for all of them. But at the same time, you know, when you talk about being complicit and, and having your ruling class do horrific things like, you know, you're sort of responsible for those things as well. So I don't think there's a black and white in this scenario. It's just made clear to Daenerys that this is a gray area and you have to operate differently in that type of situation. Yes, 100%. And like I said, the conversation, the dialogue that happens between them, it's really, really great where she's trying to like throw all this stuff on him and he's like, I can't really explain or, you know, take credit for or justify the actions, the heinous actions of all these other masters. All that I could do is just beg, you know, for, you know, as a son to, for, for your mercy as far as like, you know, being allowed to lay my father to rest. You know, like he said, it's like the past is the past. I love my father. I miss him. But whatever the case is, this has been done, you know? And she realizes it's like, yeah, it's all to kind of like iron home the point that like, yeah, the, the, her this idea that she, this simple like black and white idea that she had in her head as far as like, you know, but, you know, as far as like doing the right thing versus ruling, those are two completely different things. And again, we talk about how it results in the final act of the show. I will say, again, the seeds, the Mad Queen seeds are there. Uh, the more and more that I watch and go back and rewatch this show, re-go over these scenes that I've seen a hundred thousand times, I continue to stand by my point that the Mad Queen seeds were there. Like all of this stuff, I think is is, is set up. You know, for better for worse, whether it was Martin, whether it was D and D, whatever the case, like this stuff was set up. As far as her trauma from a young age, her like wanted to like kind of propel that into like making sure that what happened to her never really happens to anyone else. Then her actually like learning how the real world works. All of that stuff is there. It's just yeah. Um, well, I I think it's one of those things where they, um, before starting the show, knew their character. And, you know, they write this thing like season to season. They might not necessarily know. Uh, they might have the overall all arc of the series, but uh, every season they sort of get in the writer's room. They figure out what they want to do episode to episode and they flesh it out. Um, but they definitely knew their characters. They definitely knew uh, the overarching plot lines that they wanted to go for. Uh, so, you know, it's it, it seems like magic, right? You know, like all of a sudden you watch season four, you watch season five and, and six and, and so on. And all these things seem very deliberate and it's just because they knew their character and they were able to make interesting scenes that really, you know, accumulated into sort of uh, ultimately what they became. And so, you know, it's like, uh, who knows if there are these, you know, ultimate writing masterminds uh, that were able to figure this out and like plot everything prior to writing it, or maybe they just knew their characters and they, um, you know, wrote good scenes along the way and they took us on a great journey. And uh, in retrospect, it all basically seems to to be well thought out. Yes, 100 percent. But let's get to it again. It's the title of the episode. It's, it's, it's the centerpiece of the entire thing. Like I said, King's Landing came back with a vengeance this season after being kind of on the back burner last season. And it's what we would. It, it, this was an event that I had been waiting for since I read the books. Like I said, going into season four, there was a reason why this was my most anticipated season. You know, in hindsight, I think the reason, looking back, why I still enjoy season four more than season six is because what I'll say about season six is that 
Season six, all the moments in that season were, again, for the most part, original to the show. We had surpassed the books by that point. So, obviously, you know, getting Battle Masters, getting all, like, that cool stuff that we got in season six was awesome and refreshing. But just seeing, again, how many awesome things that still had yet to come by the point where they left off in season three of A Storm of Swords. Like I said, the Red Wedding was just the tip of the iceberg as far as the amount of crazy stuff that we were about to get. And the fact that we it was it was the first season that I was watching week to week after having binged the first three seasons and just every moment. It was the first time in the show's history that I was just waiting for every awesome moment. And every time it happened, it delivered. It's like we got Jamie, it's like we got Jamie reuniting with Tywin and turning him down with the King's Guard. We got Joffrey's wedding and death. We got, um, you know, Jamie giving the sword to Brienne, the Oathkeeper moment. And now we have the trial. And I'm sorry, this puts all other courtroom trial scenes to shame. Mostly because it's, again, does what kind of what we've been talking about throughout this entire episode. It's like it's one part comedic farce and one part really interesting investing courtroom drama. And courtroom dramas often give way to some of like, some of our, I know for me, some of my favorite acting moments in movie and TV history, and I think that this is no exception. But obviously, it starts off with the, with the you know, with, with a, oh my god, with a small council. See, you know, we haven't had one of those in a minute. You know, we have some new additions, Mace Tyrell, oh, yeah. Oberyn Martell. I, I, I think one of the best things about the small council is. Um, they're arguing over who's going to be the master of ships. Oh, it's great. And again, and a little, little bit of like the, you know, the unknown or back of old age old rivalry between House Tyrell and House Martell, you know? Yeah, there's there's some uh, serious heat going down in this meeting. And then Tywin walks in and, you know, basically Oberon has his feet on the table. Yeah. He's like, and he doesn't stand up. But everybody else stands up and is like gracious. So Oberon is seen throughout this whole entire episode as you know still not bending to you know the lannisters uh he won't grovel he won't do what is expected or what other people uh you know are doing which is recognizing the the power that the lannisters are he basically sees himself as equal and if you're going to waste his time and he's going to be sitting in this small council meeting well guess what you know he's going to relax and he's going to wait and he's going to see if you have anything good to say um, so I, I think it was a very telling scene of just about Oberon's uh, disposition uh, prior to going into the trial, right? You know, he's supposed to be that third guaranteed vote, you know, that basically puts Tyrion into, you know, the basically uh, the Game of Thrones equivalent of the guillotine, um, you know, whatever that is. Uh, uh, but, you know, the fact is... Um, you know, Oberon is shown as really being suspect and really not f coming into the fold of the Lannister uh, organization. Yes, 100%. And, you know, quick bits of, like, exposition here as far as recapping Tywin. Uh, you know, the Hound has been seen in the Riverlands. I love the scene where he's just like, how many, he's like, how many bags of silver do you think it would take for it to get any common sellsword to actually be stupid enough to try and take on the Hound? I love that line. And he's just like, 10, I think he's there. He's like, oh, I may as well make it 100. He's like, at the very, he's, he's, they just love out there just like, they've just given up on the Hound. They're like, okay, we, we really don't need him, you know, and, uh. Uh, also, the the big takeaway here also is Daenerys and the fact that, okay, I had it written down here in my notes here where it's like, oh my god, Tywin is finally, finally taking Daenerys seriously. After, again, the only legitimate point that Joffrey has brought up in his entire short reign as king last season when he talked to Tywin about 
Daenerys and the fact that she has, you know, dragons still. And, and, and Tywin kind of like poo-pooed it a little, you know? And, and now everyone is finally saying, they're like, yeah, she's taken over the slave cities. She's got Jorah and Barristan advising her. And Tywin once again admonishes Cersei for firing her with the King's Guard. And he's like, that was a really, really terrible idea. It didn't matter. It, it, again, it, once again, emphasizing that like, Joffrey didn't die on Sir Barristan's watch and saying that like now she's got an army of Unsullied. She's taken over the slave cities and she's got through dragons. Like she, and, and, and Tywin, Tywin now knows at this point, is like, look, I can keep dismissing the dragons as much as I want, but at the end of the day, she's become a problem, but she needs to be dealt with before she eventually turns her eyes to Westeros. And Oberyn, when, when you have Tywin and Oberyn agreeing on something, that is a problem, to say the least. So this is kind of, you know, the beginning of the concocting of the plan. Like, he finds that, oh, Jor so Jorah's not spying on her for us anymore. You know? Okay, how interesting. And then he turns to Varys, because one of your little birds find their way into her encampment, you know? And so th that that's kind of the beginning of the revelation of Jorah as a traitor to Daenerys that we find out in a couple episodes. Again, not exactly how it happens in the books, but still, I think, because yeah. in the books, obviously, it's Barrison when he reveals his identity to Daenerys that reveals Jorah as a traitor. But, uh, yeah. I, I guess we, we learn this later on, or, or we should discuss this later on, but, like, you know, when Jorah is revealed to Daenerys as a traitor, she overreacts, right? Am I the only person that basically uh, thinks that she goes a little too far? If I'm remembering correctly, it was the, the whole thing was that it was Barristan that kind of confronted him about it first. And then afterwards, she's just kind of like trying to put on the stone cold demeanor, but she's clearly hurt. I don't necessarily know if she overreacts to it as far as like her display of emotion, but definitely as far as like her choice to... Her, her, her choice of punishment for Jorah, I definitely, I mean, the whole thing that, that comes from it is it's very much meant to be an emotional response, much more so than a logistical response, because Jorah has been such a foundational part of her identity. You know, Jorah has been there for her since day one. He was kind of like the only like guiding force for her. She was the only connection that she had to her homeland. Uh, of Westeros, a wave going all the way back to season one. So it's the fact that Jorah, the, it's the revelation much more so than the actual action because by the time it's revealed, he hasn't been a spy for several years at this point. Like, he's fully committed to her once he saw the dragons hatch. So, like I said, it, it's much, it feels, oh, it's, yeah. it's meant to be conveyed as much more of an emotional response. So I I, I think it works because it, it serves the purpose regardless of whether she yeah. well, I reacts think, or I think, not. I think Jorah's obsession... Um, and just how he handles the banishment and basically try to get back into that's a little her, weird. her graces. That, 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 that's a little weird. No, it's it, it, it's kind of the, uh, you know, the safe side of creepy, you know, like he doesn't quite go okay. over that line, you know, like, but it, it's almost kind of creepy, like how, how he thinks and a little uh, bit, but, but it's, it's, you know, he's protective. He basically truly believes in her uh, in his mind, it doesn't matter that he, he kind of messed it up. Um, he's got to show his dedication no matter what because that's the type of person he has become and she needs to see it. It's it's very like, um, you know, to take the Silence of the Lambs quote, like put the lotion in the basket. He's very, yeah. very obsessive about like letting her know uh, what the situation is. And, you know, it, it's I think it works. I, I think it's an interesting arc for his character. Uh, you know, it gets him, you know, out of his normal, you know, basically setup. You know, the, yeah. the whole, um, the whole situation that yeah. you know he's been in for the last couple seasons. So, um, you know, when we cross that bridge, you know, we'll have more to say about it. But ultimately, you know, it's it's one of those things like she just like shuns him and stays angry 
and it really takes a lot, you know, almost like moving heaven and earth for uh, him to get back in her good graces. Yeah, that that and one very well timed, uh, you know, attack by the Sons of the Harpy <laughs> in that episode. Yeah. But yeah, let's let's get back to it again. The, the trial begins. It's just like, oh my god, just every single moment. Which it's really because to me, Tyrion has not been this good of a character and this, you know good of a force and Dinklage to me is not given this good of a performance since season two and just the minute that we see him like from him being chained up in the, in the jail cell and him just giving Jamie that look and he's just like oh wow you know well, you know I'm, I, I must be being set free you know just again taking shot after shot at his brother that being slowly let out him being chained and like, like he, he knows exactly yeah. what this and, is you know listen I can't get over the uh Tommen and, and just like oh, oh, I will great. recuse myself uh, I, I more, am reading from more. a script <laughs> you know, like Tommen, uh, your favorite character. It went, what a, what a these, king! These, just what a king. Lannister kings. First Joffrey, where he delights in his torture, and he's just so sycophantic and sadistic to Tommen, who could not be more useless if he tried. I, I don't know, man. Like, I guess he never had a chance. Like, yeah. he, he's just like he's too young to assume the throne, and there's too much, uh, you know, backroom deals going on between the rest of his uh, family. Yeah, you know, so he never has a chance, and I, I kind of feel bad for him, but. Like at the same time, it's just like, dude, like you're being hoodwinked. You you just fall right into the trap and so, so, so uh, that that infamous animated movie. You've been hoodwinked, baby. Great movie. <laughs> I will I will I will defend that movie to the death. Incredibly underrated movie. Okay. I, I just know it as a phrase. I don't know it as a movie. So oh, uh, it's like, yeah, I tell you, you should get it. You should check it out. It's basically it's an animated take on a couple of different Grimm's fairy tales that mixes in you know uh, Red Riding. Uh, basically, like it's it's a it's, the way that you break it out is it's basically like Red Riding Hood, but if if it were a police procedural meets Rashomon, where the entire movie you're following like the story from all the different suspects, and it turns oh, out man. the big bad wolf is like a police investigator, is like an undercover cop. Granny's like a sports junkie. The the the, the, the woodsman wants to be an actor. It's wild stuff. It is wow, absolutely and wild stuff. So you're describing a totally separate movie, not a uh, planned <laughs> prequel to this show. No, I promise. I promise. I'm not doing a planned prequel to this show because okay. it is oh. It is ludicrous to say the least. This, this is not going to be a, a B storyline in the House of Dragons. No, I, I although if if they did make this a, a B story in the House of Dragons, I would really give them props because that would be insane. But uh, yeah, so obviously, again, I, I mean, like, just I feel like just Tyrion is trying his hardest not to laugh throughout this entire thing. I feel like if he if his head wasn't quite literally, you know, on the metaphorical chopping block, he's literally would be like, oh, oh, oh this is a comedy. He's like, I'm just sitting back here listening, Marin Trant. Pycelle, Cersei, all these people just going up and telling all these stories. And he's just like, look, yeah, I, I, I think I think the best thing about this sequence is bringing up all the witty lines right. that we enjoyed the first time around. Right. Because and then that being twisted on on him. Exactly. Well, it's it's also twisting it on us, the audience, because, right. you know, we backed him. We fell in love with this character because of those lines, because he slapped Joffrey around the throne room. Um, you know, so all those actions that he took that we, the fans, backed and enjoyed. Essentially, this trial is against not only Tyrion, but it's against us, the viewer, uh, that really you know fell in love with this character. And things aren't looking good. Like we're on the ropes. Tyrion's on the ropes, and you know there's nothing really Tyrion can do. And for the most part, we we also we see him sort of giving up. You know, it, it's sort of like that down moment in a Rocky movie where he's just like, should I even try to get back right. up on in, in you know, between the montages? Ropes. Yeah, well, I, I'm talking about the final battle, right? You right. know, it's like it's round eight, you know, nine, ten, and 
Apollo Creed's got him down, you know, on the ground a couple times. It's like, should he even bother getting back up? And for the most part, like, you know, uh, Jamie basically makes a deal with Tywin. Right. Uh, that he's going well, to. Well, I'll get to that in a bit. But first, the, the Varys moment. I mean, what, what did you make of that moment? Because we obviously oh, come yeah, to later yeah. find out Varys is somebody who's always, you know, kind of been in Tyrion's corner right now. Like, he's kind of the only character that's on the stand that is just trying to save face in his own thing. You know, him and Tyrion have always had this, like, really interesting back and forth. But what did you think of that moment where Tyrion um, asked him? He's like, you I know, you said. Uh, I would be, you know, you said that uh, that I would have an important part to play, even though the history books would not remember it. You know, did you forget that? And he's like, sadly, I never forget. Yeah. So uh, for me, I, I feel like, you know, obviously Tywin got to Varys and, you know, are, you know, basically maybe he didn't really even speak to him. I don't think he but, had to. Like the death of Varys is yeah. always a character to me that seems like he is always playing his own, like Littlefinger is always playing his own game outside of the powers that like, be. Like, Varys understands the situation he's in and he testifies the way he, you know, knows the Lannisters want him to. And the fact that Tyrion says, Hey, can I ask a question? And Tywin allows it. Uh, Tyrion is just very intelligent and asks him the right question. And Varys answers in a safe political way that ultimately says his testimony is not worth listening to. Right. Um, you know, so out of all the people that have testified in the court, Varys is testimony that can just be thrown out the door because he basically uh, has undercut himself right. in the answer that he gives to Tyrion. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of that perfect situation for Varys, right? Uh, he wants to remain neutral in the middle and he basically helped both sides. You know, he told the truth, he answered faithfully, and ultimately it made Tywin's case look good. It basically, uh, Tyrion basically was able to shoot down his testimony. And so at the end of the day, you know, it's really doesn't, you know, it's equal value to both parties. Yes, 100%. That, that's, a good, that's a good analogy. Yeah, because that scene always threw me off. I think it kind of, again, goes tandem and hand in hand with, uh, you know, Varys' discussion that he has with Oberyn also prior to the trial, which is also an incredible scene. I, You know, that's one of those scenes where I just, you know, whenever I'm going through YouTube and I love rewatching clips from Game of Thrones, that's one that constantly pops up, you know, the discussion between Oberyn and Varys, and, you know, Oberyn trying to, you know, appeal to Varys. It's very, to me, reminiscent of the back and forth between Varys and Littlefinger from season one, where they're constantly, like, you know, kind of, you know, trading back and forth their, um, you know, their barbed wires and, uh, you know, the kind of their own aspirations of going for the throne and kind of their motivating factors behind it. And Oberyn and Varys have a kind of an interesting discussion. Oh, that's almost eerily similar to the discussion that Varys and Shay have at the end of season three, where Oberyn is, recognizes that Varys is from across the narrow sea, from the free cities, despite the fact that Varys has lost his accent. And then he tries to, like, appeal to Varys' sense of, um, you know, of desire. And Varys is like, nah, I'm, I'm very glad that I'm, you know, the, the, he reveals potentially his, asexu his asexuality, where he's like, I'm not a fan of desire. You know, when I see what it does to people, to this country, I'm very glad that I don't have to suffer from it. You know, and it allows me to focus on other things. Like, I'm not quite sure if he's trying to seduce him or what, because we obviously know that, you know, Oberyn's means, like, getting what he wants is usually done in a very, like, seductory, a very sexual manner. But obviously, he tries it on the one person who, obviously, like, that's not going to work on. You know, like, if, if Varys has shown one thing, it's that, you know, sexual pro proclivities are not going to work on him. I had to think about that. But then we get, we again, like just like the entire last act of this episode is just gangbusters. Like the actual trial itself, the farce portion of the trial is just a lead up. You have Jamie confronting Tywin. You have Jamie confronting Tywin being like, Hey, 
you know, th this this entire thing is a fun, you know, and again, like, again, props to Jamie for his character development, but the fact that he didn't realize that this was a complete farce, like, I don't know, like, you think they could have gotten away with it as far as, like, okay, like, this is... This, <laughs> This is a joke. This is not going to go anywhere. You know, like, it's like, I, you know, it's like th this family's had it out for Tyrion since day one. And Jamie, yeah, I, I guess just for the fact that Jamie, he's always kind of regarded himself as like, you know, oh, me and Tyrion against the world, you know, without just realizing just how much the rest of the family hated Tyrion to the point where they're willing to let him die over something that they're pretty certain he is not guilty of, you know, and he makes the deal for him. And, you know, tries to appeal to Tywin's sense of, like, you know, family honor. And he's like, you know, but well, you know, family honor. So all that was bullshit, right? And he's like, well, what do I stand to gain from letting Tyrion live? He's like, your family survives through me. And then the Tywin answers so quickly that I finally well, realized. I finally <laughs> yeah. realized. It took me years to realize this where I'm like, oh, my God. So that's what Tywin got to stand out of it. Because we, it became immediately apparent that it definitely seemed like Cersei was going to get way more out of Tyrion's death for Joffrey's murder than Tywin did, you know, even though we know that Tywin yeah, no, despises I, I, I think, you know, Tywin basically, you know, he jumps on the bandwagon here and, you know, it goes to that phrase, right? Uh, you know, never let a tragic situation go to waste, right? Yep. So he, he's- A to the very end. Exactly. So, you know, even though Cersei's going crazy and saying uh, Tyrion did it and, you know, that leads to his imprisonment and being charged for, for Joffrey's murder, uh, Tywin has his own agenda, and that is to get Jamie to basically play hero once again, try to save his brother, and make this deal uh, that he'll continue on the Lannister name. And as soon as Jamie kind of comes to that conclusion, like Tywin, he already knew that this was going to be uh, something that was uttered from his mouth. So uh, Tywin just responds, and boom, it's like, yeah, you're going to do it. And it's going to start immediately once he. You know, starts on his journeys to the Night's Watch. Yep. You're, you're going to Castle Rock. You're going to marry a good woman. You're going to continue the name, and there's going to be no more of this uh, talk uh, to the contrary. So, yes. you know, I think Tywin, again, he is playing all his children, and, you know, it, it's one of those things where we just kind of have seen it again and again and again that he fully, uh, you know, just uses them as pawns for his own uh game of you know basically family family legacy yeah 100 percent. it's it again continuing with time to see so we see jamie go and tell Tyrion about the deal that he made and he's like the trial's not he's like you, you know you're going to be declared guilty and he's like oh really i had no idea just brilliant performance from peter dinklage like 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 i said even though season two to me was like his emmy reel but this episode comes makes a pretty damn compelling argument and i have a feeling that if not for the fact that breaking bad ended that year and aaron and every actor in that year won i definitely would have made a compelling case for peter dinklage in this scene where he explains the course of the deal to him Tyrion doesn't want to believe him at first uh you know he's like you know i seem to remember ned stark getting off for the same deal jamie's like father is not joffrey you will actually walk out of here with your head with it with your head trial resumes but unfortunately jamie has put it all out there for not because <laughs> well, again because again this... tywin had this engineered from minute one where he's like okay i'm gonna bring out shay at the end she's gonna be the linchpin for Tyrion. i'm also gonna use this to get jamie back because we know that jamie cares about Tyrion, and i'm gonna use that in order to try and get him back as my golden boy like Somewhere in there, that plan lined up almost too perfectly. Like, there had to be a linchpin in there somewhere, you know? And obviously, we come to see it's because he very, very much underestimated Tyrion's love for, um, for Shay, which, again, I, this entire sequence 
as far as how it results ultimately in Tywin's undoing is because Tywin always thought that Tyrion only ever regarded, you know, uh, we, you know, you know, Shay and, and the previous women that he'd been with as objects. He severely underestimated Tyrion's actual feelings towards Shay, which he does not realize just how much he's weaponizing him. You know, he's just trying to do this as one final fuck you to Tyrion, you, you know, as far as considering him and the embarrassment of the family. But he doesn't realize just how much he's destroyed Tyrion with this one move from like an emotional and psychological standpoint, you know? No, 100%. And, you know, it, it's amazing just like how far Shay goes. Um, all the things that she's complained, like, hey, you know, Tyrion, you've treated me this way, like, you know, just as your plaything, and like, I mean nothing to you. Like, you sort of, you know, you have your, your basically mind in this Game of Thrones, but you're, you know, not paying attention to me as a person. Um, basically, she takes all that anger and turns it around and she tells sort of that dystopic story that she has warned him against the whole time. You know, it's like, this is how you view me. This is how you treat me. And, you know, we've seen him. We've seen him not really do that. Like, he just doesn't want to get his head, you know, cut off. Um, you know, and ultimately, you know, he has to hide her. He has to basically love her in private. And uh, all those things, all those insecurities that Shay has uh, because of the position she's in, that's what's used against Tyrion. You know, it's it's essentially, you know, you treated, you captured me. Uh, you made me wait in your chambers in private and, you know, you did all these horrible things to me. So, you know, the fact is uh, she basically just turns a cold shoulder, um, you know, sh showing that, you know, the the love that they had never really existed. Uh, and she basically just sort of stomps that out. And she does it because obviously, um, you know, she is made an offer that she can't refuse by Tywin. Yep. As we come to see. And it... Oh, man. Like I said, it, it's too much for Tyrion to handle. And he makes the mother... That's the speech to end all speeches. One oh, of the yeah, best monologues fantastic. in the entire show's history. Like I said, it truly Dinklage's Emmy moment right there. Where he basically admonishes. He, say, he basically tears down this entire trial. He's like, I saved all of your worthless lives from Stannis. And for what? All just to this, so I can be your kind of stage show mockery, you know, for all of this. He's like, he's like, I'm, he's like, I'm guilty. Yeah. I'm what guilty. was it? He, he would give everything, anything to watch them all drink the yeah, poisons yeah, that he like, allegedly yeah, he's stole. Like, I wish I was the monster that you all wanted me to be. I would gladly, you know, give my life just to watch, you know, it's, it's like, um, it's, it's watching your vicious little bastard die gave me more joy than a thousand lying, you know what, and something like that. You know, basically, he's like, I, he's like, I wish that I had. He's like, I didn't kill Joffrey, but I wish that I had. I wish that I had enough poison for all of you. Like I said, it's just, it's so good. Just rattling off all the misery, all the pain, all the shit that he's been through the last two seasons. Like he said, and pretty justifiably so. You know, he's like, I did. All of this for our family and for what? So you can make me your stage show mockery and like basically pin all your blame on me when things don't go your way. And he's like, no, I'm not standing for this anymore. He's like, I've let you run its course long enough. He's, he's like, and he's like, screw it. Trial by combat? Yeah, he's like, screw <laughs> it. I'm going to die anyways. I may as well go out swinging. You know, it's like if this is the only shot that I've got as far as not only proving my innocence, but kind of just like getting out of this with my head still on my shoulders, screw it. Trial by combat. Yeah, listen, I th I think the the thing that should have happened is trial by combat's called, 
And then, you know, it just takes that song, Mortal Kombat, like, but up, but up, but up, but up, but you know, whatever Mortal it is. Mortal Kombat! Yeah, exactly. I'm not really good at the song, but uh, you, you can probably, uh, you know, <laughs> no, I, that's a little much down, but, uh, you know, basically, I think people get the point. Um, the main thing is, this would have been, I'm amped. You know, I'm. I, the show did exactly what it was supposed to do, is, like, get you ready for, uh, you know, basically Oberon versus the Mountain. And it's coming, you know, the, yes. the, the episodes are, are ticking away and there's not really that much more uh, time to wait until the, the, the ultimate battle comes. Um, <laughs> and, and, and we'll this, talk and about this it season, when we get there. This season ends with a few of those ultimate right battles, but I, I think that the, I think yeah. probably like my favorite centerpiece is just how it ends with just the stare down between Tyrion and Tywin, where Tywin is just staring down at him with like this utter look of anger, and Tyrion is just like, "Ha ha! You thought you were getting it one over on me? Fuck you, Dad!" It's, it's just, yeah, yeah, like the the fact right. that the fact that the uh, the fact that they're just all like, "Oh my God, he he actually did it! He actually did it!" it, it it's it's really weird because like. Let's face it. Like, how many times is he going to get caught into some situation called right. trial for combat? There's only so many um, times that he can do that. But he did bring up one legit point, which is that he's like, yeah, uh, th this is complete stage show mockery from start to finish, and I am not giving my life for Joffrey. No way. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, it's it's like, obviously, that's the sort of cut the credits moment. Uh, not much more to, to see yeah. here. Uh, you all got to go home. You know, I, I guess you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here type of thing. Can't stay here, uh, the episode is done. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's we're just left. You know, we don't know at this point um, that Oberon's going to step up and be his right. champion. Right. And I think he's that's still what hoping the next... that Bron's going to do it. And as we see in the next episode, Bron is not as willing. He's, he's come a long way since the first time he represented Tyrion, you know, way back in season one. Yeah, and I think the what is it? The whole next episode is about Oberon deciding, and then the the duel is the episode. Yeah, after well, that. well, so the next episode is first he tries to appeal to Bron. Bron says no. He knows he can't get Jamie to represent him, and then the episode ends with Oberon with Oberon volunteering to represent him. Like that's how the next episode ends. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Well, hey, listen, we're gonna see next week. You know, I'm gonna definitely uh, review that episode one more time and. Uh, you know, it, it's this season's heating up and, yeah. you know, it's, uh, like I said, back half of this season, get ready. Cause it is banger after banger yeah, after banger. We got the duel. We got, uh, the battle of the wall. Yes. We got, what else do we got? We got the, uh, we got Tyrion um, killing Tywin. We got Brienne yeah. versus the Hound. We got, oh yeah, we got all this. Lysa. Yeah. We, we got a lot of stuff in the, in the next couple episodes. So and, and we also, we, ha all we have, bad. um, whatchamacallit, uh, a little wind in Arya's hair as she yes. travels across the ocean. Yes, indeed. No, there's a yeah. there's a lot. Season four is definitely going to end on a very big, impactful moment, but that was season four, episode six, episode 36, our halfway point of the show, The Laws of Gods and Men. We'll be back next week for episode 37, entitled Mockingbird, named after Littlefinger's sigil. Of course, you can continue to stay up to date with everything going on in the Talking Thrones verse by following this podcast feed on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and be sure to subscribe to the Talking TV YouTube channel. Be sure to follow myself at Movie Nerd Reviews across all platforms. Be sure to follow the Talking TV official Talking TV podcast across Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And be sure to follow my co-host here, Professor Pat Huber at Patrick W Huber on Instagram, where he will hopefully one day post <laughs> yeah. Instagram pictures. Uh, yeah, it, it's coming. I'm taking photos. You know that that's right, the one thing right, that's true. Start, start. Whether or not I'm, uh, you know, agreeing with the uh, terms of service of Instagram and posting them out there. Uh, that's another thing. I, you know, I haven't really gotten that threshold well, uh, across, but hey, hopefully one day, one day, 
Hopefully one day we will see. And of course, you can continue to tune in for new episodes of Talking Thrones released every Friday on the podcast feeds. And as always, people remember, stay frosty. 12 seasons in a short film and watch more fucking movies. We'll see you guys next yeah, week. Watch more kangaroos or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs>